and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden at Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And a very good afternoon uh, in Botswana. For the first time, we're calling Botswana. I'm so excited to have uh, Frank Youngman, a professor of adult education at the University of Botswana, to join us on the program. Uh, a very good afternoon to you, Professor Youngman. Thank you very much indeed. It's it's a pleasure to join your podcast. Well, we're very excited, and I am especially excited because, unlike Cobus, I have devoted you know countless hours of my life, thirty years of my life now, uh, and I'm revealing how old I am uh, by <laughs> by studying Chinese. And you know, I started studying Chinese at 15 years old in high school, and it's become something wow. of a passion slash obsession slash addiction. I don't know what it is, but to this day, I still have Chinese classes two, three times a week, you know, memorizing characters and That's doing those types of things. And it really is. And it's been, it's been one of the joys of my life to be able to learn Chinese. And one of the reasons that we're so excited to have uh, Professor Youngman on the show today is because he wrote uh, an article uh, in the African East Asian Affairs Journal, uh, Engaging Academically with China and Africa, the Institutional Approach of the University of Botswana, and he's done remarkable work to bring Chinese studies and Sinology to the University of Botswana in such a way that it's really put the University of Botswana on the map as a leader on the continent for Chinese studies, in many ways on par with some of the better-known universities like Stellenbosch University in South Africa, but in very different ways. So I'd like, you know, first, before, Professor, before I get into the details, I want to kind of introduce the University of Botswana to everybody. Because okay. people may not be familiar with it, 18,000 students, 900 faculty. Uh, so it's a rather large university. And then in 2004, the school embarked on a new strategic plan to become, quote, and I'm quoting you from your article here, uh, interna an international center of academic excellence with a new policy of internationalization. And that really had three major components to it. Expand international student and staff exchanges, expand international research cooperation, and enhance international, the internationalization of all curricula. So to do that, UB then reached out around the world, particularly in Asia, to form these partnerships. And they had th you formed three partnerships with South Korea, four in China, and two in, uh, I'm sorry, four in Japan and two in China. But although you had fewer in China than you did in some other countries, it seems like the relationships with the Chinese universities went much, much deeper. So tell us a little bit about why in 2004, you, when you were back, I think you were the, uh, the deputy vice chancellor for academic affairs, and you were responsible for spearheading a lot of this, what motivated you to focus on China in particular and, and, and kind of develop the, 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 some of the Chinese studies programs at UB? Well, thanks very much for, for giving all of that background. As you say, I was in a, a policy-making position at that point in time, and we reached the conclusion that we needed a more strategic and coordinated approach to internationalization at the university. And as we reviewed our situation at the time, it was clear that the kind of linkages that had built up over the years were primarily with Europe and North America. And so we felt that was too, well, it was a distortion in effect, and we needed to strengthen our linkages within Africa. That was one um, 
trajectory we took. And then we very strongly believed that Asia was now playing such an important part in in world affairs and in African affairs particularly, that we needed to reach out to some key countries in Asia. So we identified four, basically. India was one, and India has proved pretty difficult, in fact, to make university partnerships with. Japan, Korea, and then, of course, China. And I had the key responsibility for really trying to develop our relationships with China. So that was a very important strategic move by the university and a very exciting project that I was involved with. Um, one of the one of the uh, key steps, I think, for universities that are that are very serious about about making links, building relationships with China, is the is, is getting a Confucius Institute. And I, and I know that the University of Botswana has one of the few Confucius Institutes in Africa. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the what what, it, what does it take to actually get a Confucius Institute to one's home institution, and what what is what are the processes one goes through. Okay, let me just step back briefly because I think this is quite interesting. I started talks with the Chinese embassy about linkages to Chinese University in 2005. And it was, we were going nowhere really. And then at FOCAC in November 2006, the Chinese government announced that it would support Confucius Institutes in Africa. And that really changed the landscape and and we were ready and waiting and the organization which is the headquarters for Confucius Institute's uh, Hanban they invited us to China and invited us to visit several possible partner universities and we visited and we had certain things we were looking for. And one of the things we were looking for was that a university had an existing interest in Africa, that we weren't just coming out of the blue, but they already had some engagement with the continent. And that's why we ended up with our key initial partner being Shanghai Normal University, because it has a center for African studies. And we felt we could get greater reciprocity if we said to them, look, we can be a resource for helping you develop your African studies, whilst, on the other hand, we need you to develop our Confucius Institute and our capability in, in Chinese studies. So we certainly took that kind of um, approach that we would look for a reciprocal relationship because as you may know, in the world of international linkages for African universities, it's often a very asymmetrical relationship that American universities, even some Chinese universities, essentially view themselves as big brothers in relation to African universities, certainly outside of South Africa. So looking for and developing some kind of reciproc reciprocity and symmetry is, I think, a key task that anybody embarking on new relationships needs to bear in mind.
Well, let me just... Uh, so, oh, I'm sorry. Keep going. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah, so going to the practicalities of Kovas' question, one would actually start with your local Chinese embassy and indicate an interest. And then um, one would likely be invited to China to visit a number of universities and identify a suitable partner. And I think there are certain criteria one would be looking at technically, like whether the Chinese university has a, a, a college or a, a school that um, is involved with the teaching of Chinese as a foreign language, because in that way it has generated already expertise, materials, etc., in teaching Chinese to non-Chinese language speakers, which is obviously a, it's a special technique as in teaching English as a second language or English as a foreign language. Mm -hmm. So that is important. But then there are other factors like we visited um, a university in, in, in Beijing, which already had a number of Confucius Institutes. And they were upfront enough to tell us that they couldn't handle any more because managing Confucius Institutes is quite a task on the Chinese university side. It's quite demanding on their administrative and other resources. So, you know, there are things one has to bear in mind when seeking a, a, a partner for establishing a Confucius Institute. Now, in your essay, uh, actually, no, let me, before I ask my question, let me just back up a little bit. And for those of yeah. us listening who may not be familiar with what the Confucius Institutes are, okay. uh, this is, as you, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but they are much like the Alliance Francaise or the Goethe Institute, where they promote uh, Chinese culture and language education all over the world and their partnerships with universities. And they also do, they're also involved in some levels of research. Am I correct? The basic, the fundamental is, as you say, they're set up to promote Chinese language and culture and understanding. Um, they're different from the Alliance Francaise and so forth, insofar as they are university-based, and they're a partnership not between, I mean, Alliance Francaise is basically a government department. Um, a Confucius Institute is basically an academic partnership between a Chinese university and a host university, whether okay. it's in the U.S. or Africa or whatever. Okay. Well, let me so, let me just pick up on that very quickly because yeah. this past year, um, the Confucius Institutes have always been controversial to some degree. But in the past year yeah. now, we've seen that Stockholm University in Sweden – and the prestigious mm. University of Chicago in the United States are not going to renew their affiliations with the Hanban and the, and the Confucius Institute yeah. on charges that there's interference in academic freedom. You address this question in your September 2014 article in the African East Asian Affairs Journal and saying that you are evaluating this. But, and I guess the reason that it comes up is that you know, you make this affiliation with the Confucius Institutes, but if you want to bring up sensitive issues like Taiwan, the One China Policy, Tibet, Xinjiang, any of the sensitive issues that fall within what China deems as the no-go zone, uh, you could run into problems. Has the University of Botswana encountered any of the same problems 
that Stockholm University and the University of Chicago may have encountered? We're fully aware of the, the controversies and the potential problems that may come with significant Chinese funding. It's for this reason that we in our university have seen the Confucius Institute as separate from our regular academic departments and we set up a department of Chinese studies so that even a perception that being in receipt of Chinese governmental money could influence what we do, we try to avoid that perception. In practice, we have never had the kind of problems that Chicago and Stockholm cite. You know, the, some of the American universities apparently signed agreements which made their arrangements under Chinese law, for example, which I find very strange. Our agreement is quite clear that the governance arrangements are under the aegis of the University of Botswana, the legal situation is under Botswana law, and we have a clause that um, teachers are free to use whatever materials they want and so forth in the classroom. So some of the things that may be U.S. universities maybe unwittingly or naively signed up to, we certainly did not. Um, we have had public meetings, for example, addresses by the, the deputy um, ambassador to our students, and students have asked questions on Tibet and so forth, and they've given their you know, usual robust answers. They haven't been um, flustered or taken aback that these issues were going to come up. So, you know, in both in framework terms in how our Confucius Institute has been set up and in practical terms, I have not seen manifestations of interference on what they do. However, as a policy person, I was very clear that we needed to be able to avoid any possibility or any perception that our full academic program would be externally influenced. So our Confucius Institute is a it's an outreach unit. It takes adult students primarily in the evenings, teaches Chinese. It holds events, photo exhibitions or martial arts events and, and so forth. So we don't have a um, academic research component within the institute. Other universities have managed their institute, their Confucius Institute differently. Um, and if you look worldwide, the pattern does vary from, from place to place. So I think one can also, if you take agency as a host university, you can decide what kind of CI model you want to follow. 
Yeah. Um, sorry to interrupt. Um, I'd love to ask you a little bit about your teaching program, about your academic program. Um, right. You know, one of the challenges that I that I experience um, as someone who teaches China and Asia-related stuff um, in, in a South African university is that one starts from such a low base of knowledge about, about the history and culture and economics and so on of East Asia that, uh, you know, kind of it, it, you spend quite a few lectures on, you know, kind of just, you know, kind of introducing basic, the basics of, of Chinese and Japanese, in my case, Japanese history. So it's the things like, okay, there was a revolution, you know, then someone named Mao took over, that, that kind of, you know, very kind of very basic issues. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you um, tailor-made your curriculum to fit African students and, and what you had to include and exclude. Yeah, I think that's a very challenging issue, Cobus. Um, we started in 2011 a bachelor's degree in Chinese studies, a four-year program, which is standard for our university. And it, it includes a language component, and then it includes courses on you know, contemporary China, Chinese history, philosophy, and those kinds of things, as you would expect. And in the third year, all the students go to China for a year with a view of intensifying their language capability, exposing them to the realities of contemporary China and, you know, deepening their understanding. But I think we have significant continuing challenges. Um, one is the availability of academic staff with the capability to teach these kinds of courses. So, say, some of the, the history, cultural courses, we've, we've pulled in really non-specialists from the history department and other departments. So, Having specialist staff will be a challenge and developing those staff over time, you know, recruiting people, helping people get PhDs and so forth, I think it's going to be very difficult. Um, having enough language teachers is a problem and again, developing materials that are relevant to the African context and the Botswana context rather than the general Chinese language textbooks, which, you know, have been developed largely for English-speaking audiences in, in the U.S. And, and Europe. These are, are big challenges. So I would say probably the, we have a group now that's in its fourth year. I don't think its language competence is as advanced as we had hoped for, and I suspect that its um, general academic knowledge of, of China, Chinese history, even contemporary politics and so forth is probably not as deep as one would hope for um, as a, you know, from degree students. So I think there's a lot of challenges. I, we had hoped that the, the year in China, which was mandatory, would really jump forward their, their language capability 
um, hoping to push their HSK level up to to level four. Um, and we hoped that being immersed in China would, you know, help deepen their understanding. But I think there's a lot of challenges and the sustainability actually of financing that third year abroad is increasingly coming into question. So I think in short, Cobus, <laughs> the challenges you've already identified are ones we're confronting. And I think probably overall, the one that I would cite is staffing um, such a, a program, finding people with that knowledge and developing academics with, you know, requisite postgraduate qualifications is going to be a, a big challenge. You know, you know, Cobus, all we hear about from young PhDs is they can't find a job in academia. So maybe there's an opportunity here to go <laughs> oh. to the University of Botswana. Honestly, we've had send, entire podcasts send in our on this. direction. Good. I mean, you know, because we've, we, we know countless people who say, I've got this PhD or this master's degree in China, Africa, and I don't know what to do with it. So, uh, you know, we, okay. we'll have to put the word out, you know. Hey, you know, so... Uh, <laughs> But listen, I here's what we, here's, we here's, have been in, we've been advertising jobs um, <laughs> in the last few months for sure. Wonderful. Hey, listen, it, 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 would you hire yeah. somebody without a PhD who only has a master's? Does that work? It does work with us. Okay. Uh, well, I might submit an application. A, I'll have to talk to my wife. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously, our hope is that. Um, we would find PhD people or people who come with masters. We would very much encourage to to go the PhD route. Right. But then, of yes, course, the challenge is finding yeah. finding institutions within Africa where you can do, uh, you know, a, a sinologically oriented PhD. Right. That's not easy. Well, it, honestly, now in our future conversations, Cobus, with young people who say they can't find a job, we're going to put University of Botswana. On the radar, but I will tell you right now, though, that the work you are doing, in my view, is some of the most important work in, in, for Africa. Because David Shambaugh, the famous uh, you know China scholar out of the United States, he wrote that you know countries like Brazil and and and, and all throughout Africa lack the, the the technical expertise to work with the Chinese. The Chinese have yeah. a Botswana policy; yeah. they have a Rwanda policy. But the reverse yeah. is not true. The people do not speak the languages in Africa of, uh, you know, to deal with the Chinese. Mm -hmm. They don't know the history well enough. They don't know the politics and the social sociological issues. And it puts African negotiators at a huge, huge disadvantage when they're negotiating with the Chinese. So to level the playing field, the work that you are doing by training the next generation of young Botswanans to become fluent and conversant in not only Chinese language, but Chinese politics, culture, history, all of those things will, will, is, yeah. is just – I can't say how important it is. And uh, so we're just we're, – we're thrilled that you were able to come on, on and share some of what you're doing. The, the paper that uh, Professor Youngman wrote is in the Issue 3, September 2014 edition of the African East Asian Affairs Journal, Engaging Academically with China in Africa, the Institutional Approach of the University of Botswana. Just go to the Center for Chinese Studies. That's the Stellenbosch University, their website. It's up there. 
You can find it at ccs.org.za. And, of course, we'll put a link to this paper uh, on our website as well as on the China File website where you can find our podcast as well. So, Professor Youngman, thank you for taking time out of your very busy day to join us all the way from the University of Botswana. Oh, it's been a great pleasure. Thank, thank you very much for inviting me to talk with your, you and reach out to your audience. Wonderful. I very much enjoyed it. And Kobus, if people want to follow what you're reading and writing these days, what's the best way that they can stay in touch with you? Yeah, I mean, you'll find me on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And also on Twitter at Stadenesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find me on Twitter as well at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Also, Kobus and I are pushing out every week now on Mondays a new China Africa Project uh, e-newsletter. So we're putting out uh, a newsletter with uh, news and commentary and our latest podcasts, but news from around the web. So we go out and we curate the best five or six articles from around the web to help get your week started. Just go to our website at chinaafricaproject.com to sign up and you'll get that email newsletter. We'll put links to very fascinating things like the work that Professor Youngman is doing at the University of Botswana. We'll include that in our next email newsletter as well. Uh, And of course, if you want to follow this podcast, the best way to do it is just go over to iTunes, search for China Africa Project and you'll find us. And we would be so grateful if you could leave a comment or a rating as that helps other people find the show. So until next time, we'll be back with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.